Welcome to the Successful Farming Podcast. I'm David Ekstrom. On today's podcast, Successful Farming Digital Content Editor Megan Schilling sat down with Ed Terry in his farmhouse kitchen to talk about his family farm's legacy and the lessons he's learned on a 150-year-old farm. Before we hear from Ed Terry, we would like to thank our sponsor, Massey Ferguson, a proud supporter of Century Farms and those building a lasting farming legacy. Hello, I'm Darren Parker, Vice President of Massey Ferguson, North America. And on behalf of everyone here at Massey Ferguson, I'd like to congratulate every Century Farm. We build straightforward and dependable equipment for farms like these and people like you. The people working hard to build something that lasts. The people who were born to farm. So from all of us at Massey Ferguson, thank you for inspiring us with your hard work and dedication. Enjoy the podcast. At Massey Ferguson, we're proud of our 175-year history of straightforward and dependable machinery. We're proud to build tractors and hay equipment that help feed the world year after year. But most of all, we're proud to support farmers. Always have been, always will be. Check out our entire lineup of farmer-first tractors, equipment, and implements today at MasseyFerguson.com or visit your local dealer to learn more. Ed Terry of Northfield, Minnesota has celebrated major milestones in the past year. In addition to his family farm reaching a sesquicentennial, Terry retired after 51 years teaching agriculture and serving as an FFA advisor. Terry's teaching career began in 1968 in Farmington, Minnesota. He had earned a degree in agricultural education because the family farm wasn't expanding at the time. During his six years teaching in Farmington, he helped the ag program to grow so much a second teaching position was added. In 1974, Terry's father, Chester, retired from farming. Terry, his wife Carol, and his brother David formed a 50-50 partnership to take over the farm that had been in Terry's family since 1871. Tell me about your family and how the farm started, how your family got farming here. The story about how the farm got started is kind of interesting. Uh, my great-grandfather was born in New York, uh, came west, uh, spent a couple years in Racine, Wisconsin, then moved to this general area, not this particular farm, but this general area. He was there for uh, just a couple years, and then he enlisted in the Army, the 7th Minnesota Regiment, uh, for the Civil War. And he was gone for four years uh, with the war. Uh, came back uh, and uh, actually went into a uh, partnership in a lumber yard in Northfield. And after a few years, uh, I guess five, six to be exact, he decided that you know farming was his passion. And his partner actually owned this farm uh, and was not really interested in the farm. So my great-grandfather traded his half interest uh, in the lumber business for this farm and enough lumber to build the uh, farmhouse. And that farmhouse still stands today. My brother lives in that house that was built in 1871. Uh, so that's how we came to be here. If I could talk to my great-grandfather, I would probably ask him why he picked one of the rockiest farms around, but uh, that's the way it worked out. And then, of course, it went from my great-grandfather to my grandfather in uh, 1899. Uh, then in 1946, uh, my parents bought the farm. And then in 1979, uh, my wife Carol and I and my brother David bought the farm. And uh, uh, my brother is uh, a bachelor, uh, and Carol and I have uh, 
two children. Uh, Lisa works for uh, in the corporate business with CHS, and my, our son Michael uh, is a machinist fabricator. How, what did the farm look like when your great-grandfather was here? Crops, livestock, uh, what was that like? Well, you know, if you go back to 1871, uh, the original barn held uh, eight cows, four horses. Uh, everybody had a few pigs, a few chickens. We know that. Uh, they didn't crop the whole farm by any means. There was a lot of pasture. Uh, there was no such thing really as alfalfa, it was clover. Uh, and they raised a little bit of corn, uh, uh, some oats and wheat uh, because uh, Dundas, which is only a few miles uh, south of Northfield, uh, the Archibalds, they were kind of the uh, original milling capital of Minnesota before Minneapolis became the big deal. So local wheat went to uh, Dundas. And a, it, were there dairy cows here at some point? Uh, dairy cows were here from basically 1871 until December of 2004. In 2004, uh, my brother and I and, and my wife made a decision that uh, we probably should uh, exit the dairy business. Our son really has no interest in livestock and we'd done all our expansion in the mid-70s and everything was getting to the point need to be replaced and there's really no resale value for uh, 65 cow size equipment anymore. So what do you do? Uh, so we decided to liquidate the dairy and transition to uh, a small beef cow herd. And uh, even as we were, when we were dairymen, uh, we always fed out our own Holstein steers and after we sold the cows, we started buying baby calves, week old, bottle fed them in hutches to start with and finished them out. And we still do that today. Although we don't bottle feed them, we buy started calves because uh, at our age, standing out in January with a bottle in your hand feeding a calf is not really exciting anymore. What else is going on around here? You've got crops growing. This, what does the operation look like besides the, the beef cattle? Uh, so today we currently raise corn, soybeans, and alfalfa. Uh, we start the alfalfa under uh, an oat nurse crop and make oat hay and then take off the alfalfa after that. Other than that, pretty traditional. I mean, uh, my parents at one time did have hogs. Uh, my mother, of course, uh, had chickens until uh, late into the 1960s, which was pretty typical of a farm wife. The next generation bought the land. There were always two requirements. Number one, make sure you get your payments made to the previous generation. And number two, the other thing that's always been passed down is it's your responsibility to leave the farm and the land better than when you acquired it. So, you know, we have uh, grass waterways, uh, we have uh, sediment basins uh, for conservation practices. Uh, with, you know, fair amount of alfalfa, which, uh, you know, is important in the rotation uh, with our corn and soybeans. Uh, so those would kind of be our uh, conservation practices. Uh, we've practiced uh, uh, minimum till for probably 35 years at least. Uh, we still have a moldboard plow. It just gets rustier sitting in the shed. Those are... 
really powerful requirements that were established, you know, or yeah. expected. And, uh, when we sell uh, to the next generation, that will be uh, part of the deal, yeah. you know, uh, because, uh, you know, they're not making any more land and with uh, the growing world population and the loss of land due to uh, housing, commercial, industrial, roads, etc. You know, uh, we will have to be more productive and you're only going to be able to do that with, uh, you know, better soil and the technology, you know, through the seed industry and everything else. What have you seen really make a difference on the farm over time or even even now? Is there some tech that you're interested or have been working with that's been useful? Well, in terms of technology, you know, obviously uh, yield monitors on, on a combine are really important because, uh, you know, as you travel across the field, you can see the difference in yield and uh, you can make uh, adaptations in, in the future about, you know, why was this spot not as good as other spots, you know, so we can get a more uniform yield. And of course, we use auto steer to cut down on overlap, which, you know, saves fuel, saves time, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, and then, you know, I think the, uh, the technology in the seed business, you know, we went through, uh, a severe drought in, in, 90, in 76, uh, we averaged 10 and a half bushels of corn to the acre when a normal crop would have been close to 100 bushels in those days. Uh, and we've had dry years since then, not as dry as that, but you know, the new hybrids perform really well even in tough conditions. You know, even like uh, the federal crop insurance programs that we have today are important. I mean, we didn't we had crop insurance in 1976, but it was nowhere as near as good as crop insurance is today if you have a disaster. Uh, and, you know, input costs are high. We need to be able to cover those costs. Uh, so you need that risk management protection. For my grandparents, you know, obviously the depression uh, was a challenge. I mean, you know, corn got down to uh, a nickel a bushel uh, and uh, Believe it or not, that's when people decided it was uh, better to uh, burn corn for heat than to uh, sell it, you know, and then all of a sudden here we are 70 years later or 80 years later and corn stoves become a big thing again, you know. Uh, so the depression was, uh, uh, you know, one of those things. Uh, in, and I do not remember the year, uh, but in the mid fifties, we had army worms uh, that I mean, just devastated anything that was green. I mean, uh, I remember my dad uh, cutting oats, uh, swathing oats, really before they were quite ripe, simply because if you didn't, the army worms were gonna get them. So they laid there for a while and kind of ripened in the swath, so to speak. And then, you know, uh, the other thing has been, you know, probably the ups and downs of the market. I mean, uh, we've had some tough years, uh, you know. Uh, this is, you know, 2022. Uh, we had a chance to sell corn for nearly $8 a bushel. In the summer of 2020, corn got down to 
287 a bushel here. I mean, so being able to deal with those wide swings is, uh, is always a challenge, to say the least. Uh, but those are, you know, uh, some of the major things. I mean, uh, weather is constantly changing. Uh, we don't have the, uh, the snow that we used to. Uh, fortunately, we don't have the bitterly cold spells like we did 30, 40 years ago. But uh, still, you know, still challenges. And, and the other challenges, you know, uh, I can't even begin to remember all the names of crop protection projects that I have used, you know, to control weeds, for example. And so we basically get, you know, well, quackgrass or Canada thistle might be an example. You know, 50, 60 years ago, those were a real challenge. Today, nobody has those. We've got those under control, but we have water hemp, you know, which is just raising heck because it's getting resistant to control and giant ragweed is getting resistant to control. And, you know, uh, we have new diseases, you know, now the one coming in is tar spot, for example. Uh, and, you know, uh, when a plant gets a disease, there is no treatment. It has to be bred to be resistant to those diseases. I guess if you want to talk recent history, the pandemic has been a challenge in terms of getting, uh, well, sometimes it's even tough if you want to buy new equipment to find new equipment. Prices of used equipment have skyrocketed and uh, parts, uh, you know, sometimes uh, you just can't get the parts you need or it's back ordered and, you know, you're, you're waiting for it, you know. Uh, we have not had a problem getting fertilizer or uh, crop protection projects, but you know, the, uh, the mechanical side of the picture has been more of a challenge. Firms that serve us as farmers, you know, implement dealers, they're short of technicians in the shop, uh, crop protection people, they're short of applicators, short of drivers. Sometimes you're delayed and when you get things that you thought you were gonna get a day or two before, for example, so. The pandemic has created some issues for us. Those are so many challenges that everyone faces too. How did how have you persevered? What's helped to sustain you through those challenges? You have to believe in agriculture. You have to believe in yourself and your own ability to, to deal with those things. As I look back, uh, you know, my grandparents and my parents lived through the depression and, you know, Having a rainy day fund was very important to them, realizing, because, you know, in the Depression, a lot of farmers who were buying land lost it because it was financed either by big insurance companies or banks, and they couldn't make the payments. So, you know, owning land is pretty important. The sun always comes up in the east, and I mean, you just, some days you just gotta hope that the next day is better you know, uh, to help you persevere. You know, farmers are competitive by nature. Uh, if they didn't like a challenge, they wouldn't be in the business because there are challenges all the time in agriculture. You know, you can have the best dairy cow in the barn and uh, you lose your calf, for example, you know. It can be devastating, but you have to be able to recover from that. And you do it by belief and, you know, uh, 
because of the nature of the business, you know, you pretty much work hand in hand with the good Lord, you know, that's the way it is. After this short break, Ed talks about his career as a teacher and how he shared his agricultural experience to inspire his students. Cleaner cuts, better windrows, denser bales. You've heard the stories about legendary hay in the Heston by Massey Ferguson machines that make it happen. From self-propelled windrowers and mower conditioners to square and round balers, Heston has the equipment you need to start your own hay legend, whether you're feeding your own herd or running a full-scale hay operation. Be legendary. Run Heston Hay Equipment. Learn more at MasseyFerguson.com or visit your local Heston by Massey Ferguson dealer. Ed, I know that you have been a teacher. Can you talk about how you got started as a, as a teacher, what, what you've done and who you've taught and where, and give me some background. I graduated from high school in 1964. My dad was not in expansion mode. There obviously wasn't income for two families here. And I'd had a good experience with my ag teachers at Northfield High School, and so I decided I would go to college and become an ag teacher, which I did. Uh, but my ultimate goal was to always be a full-time farmer. Got out of college, 1968, taught full-time in Farmington, uh, Minnesota. Uh, pretty much rebuilt that program. It was struggling when I took it over. Uh, by the fourth year I was there, we added the second ag teacher. 1974, my dad decided to retire. So my wife and I formed a partnership with my brother, David, and expected to be farmers the rest of our life. And that was going to be it. Because I was involved with the town board, I was active with the creamery, I was involved with the Minnesota Forage and Grassland Council, etc. Well, in the summer of 1977, this little school down the road of Randolph called me and said, uh, we've signed kids up to take an ag class. We really don't know anything about it. Uh, would you come down and talk to us? Because it's only nine miles from where I live. And so I went down and talked to him about what's involved in agriculture and the FFA that goes along with it. And uh, then they wanted me to teach. And I kept saying, no, we were milking a lot of cows and running land and kept saying no. And uh, the strange part about the story is this. Uh, I was the uh, open class dairy and beef superintendent at the Dakota County Fair. The chairman of the school board in Randolph's son was showing dairy cattle. And as I was clerking the show, I could see him around the ring, it was an outdoor ring, and I could see him occasionally talking to people and pointing at me. And he was telling people that I was the new ag teacher in Randolph. Well, that kind of sealed the deal, you know, it was a neighbor not too far away, etc. And I figured, well, and, and you know, Carol and I and David had talked about this. Would there be a possibility that I could make it work? And so anyway, that kind of sealed the deal. And that's how I ended up at Randolph and got to the end of the first year. They couldn't find a part-time teacher and I'd had pretty good kids. I didn't want to drop them. So I said, well, one more and that's it. Because originally I said it was a one-year deal. I did the second year, same problem. Next 43 years are just history. But it's a very supportive community. Uh, I started with 15 ag students and uh, FFA members, and I ended up with 163 FFA members. Some of those, of course, are graduates who maybe are still showing livestock, working on their, getting their American degrees, etc. But 
1994, I started a co-op program with Northfield, where Northfield students could come two hours a day in the morning, take ag, and then go back to Northfield. And then in 97, I started an outreach program, and I've served uh, eight schools in the general area who uh, do not offer agriculture and FFA program. And those kids come for night sessions uh, from these surrounding communities. And that's how the program has really grown to where it is today. I was in my third generation of teaching. So I have a, a little gal, I had her dad, I had her grandpa. And in more than one case, I've known five generations of the same family, simply because, you know, I'm, I'm close to school. So, you know, I know the student, the parent, the grandparent, the great-grandparent, and the great-great-grandparents of some of my students. I always tell people that, uh, to me, I don't have students, they are my kids and extended family, but to the rest of the world, they are young professionals in agriculture, and that's how they are treated. I know you've been passionate about the youth and agriculture, and I suppose you've seen uh, a lot of, you've seen the future of agriculture, especially in your students. Oh, so yeah. talk yeah. about how, how important that is to you to help the next generations. Ourselves being assessed with Centennial Farm and, and realizing the importance of, I guess you could say the tradition of agriculture is a family business. Uh, you know, I, I really like to see these kids achieve their potential and if they want to farm, there needs to be a way to uh, get them involved in farming. I can only be uh, a catalyst in those processes, but uh, hopefully it's, it's working out. I have several of my former students who are farming. They started farming with parents. They're now on their own. And, and a lot of kids in, in agribusiness, you know, whether it's uh, the lending side, the uh, input side, uh, they still have their agricultural roots. There probably was no place for them on the farm. They may not have been as interested in the farm, but uh, interested in agriculture. We talk a lot, and I've experienced this too, that there's so many different places you can go in agriculture. You can work oh. in technology. You can work with animals. You can work on the agribusiness side. There's really so many different options for the future. And, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people in industry, and you know, uh, we do not have enough farm kids to fill the agricultural jobs anymore. So they end up hiring people, you know, let's say in technology. Well, they may understand technology very, very well, but you know, they can't relate to how what they're seeing on their computer relates to, to corn or to cows or whatever. I mean, it's kind of like, I always tell my kids, first thing you need to do in agriculture is you need to learn the vocabulary. You know, you go to the fair, and, you know, every black and white animal that, that's standing there is a cow. It may be a calf, maybe a cow, maybe a heifer, maybe a steer, maybe a bull. But they're all cows to people, you know. They just have no, no understanding. And, you know, people drive down the road and they have no idea what that piece of machinery is out there. They don't even know what crop that is. Is that corn? Is that soybeans? Is it oats? Is it wheat? You know, in our area here, we raise a lot of seed corn, and seed corn, you know, looks very different because, you know, the frame in seed corn is four female rows and a male row. And, 
you know, they detassel the females and then they uh, pollinate and destroy the male row and come back and just harvest the, the four rows, you know. Uh, different than what we do when we're raising field corn or sweet corn. I always tell my, did tell my kids in school, you know, that the biggest job we have in production agriculture is telling our story and informing people where their food comes from. Because we have all kinds of services, you know. We have agronomists and we have nutritionists, I mean, you know, uh, that we can rely on to help us with growing the crop or producing the milk or raising the beef. But if the consumer is not happy with what they understand about agriculture, we're in trouble. You shared some of the advice that you give to your students. What advice do you have for new farmers or beginning farmers? What would you, what would you say as words of wisdom or? I would say that, you know, when you're starting out, to make a goal of it, you gotta be optimistic. But you need to be conservatively optimistic because not every day, not every year is going to be a good one. You know, we saw what happened in the early 80s uh, with the farm crisis. A lot of forced sales, a lot of foreclosures on land, machinery, etc. People got too optimistic. It's a real challenge today for young people to get started in the business unless there's substantial, and I mean substantial, family help because Young farmers can't compete with $350 rent, $10,000 plus land, and high input costs. The average age of farmers is, you know, 57, 58 years old, and I obviously don't help that at my age. Farmers tend not to retire early, you know, uh, because they have, we as farmers, have a love for the land, we have a love for what we do, you know. Even through the tough times, you know, we have a, a commitment to to livestock and to land and to our families and to our communities, you know. The other piece of advice probably would be to uh, to be involved in your community. I look at, uh, you know, the corn growers, the soybean growers, the, uh, the Midwest Dairy Association, you know, the people that are on those boards are 50, 60, 70 years old. We need young, fresh ideas, I mean, these, and I'll call them kids, that are starting out to farm, I mean, they need to have some skin in the game in some of these things, you know. I mean, as a family, we are very proud that four generations have owned this farm. Everybody, for, or somebody from every generation has served on the town board, for example. Uh, and besides that, you know, a school board, church boards, uh, corn growers, forage, organizations, uh, you name it. I think that to be successful, you need to do some of those things, you know. You can't just get done with your farming day and say, well, I'm done for the day. You need to get out there and, and be involved. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you really want to farm, you need to start cultivating relationships with people who are probably nearing retirement, who may not have anybody to follow them. When I taught young farmer class, one of the things I talked about uh, with my students was, you know, you need to actually write a resume of how you farm so you can give that to a neighbor who is retiring or who may want to rent his land out, you know. What, what can you do for him? You know, how are you going to care for his land? Yes, too many people are only concerned about the high bidder when they rent out land, but 
if you're really and truly attached to the land, you want your land taken care of. And that may not be the guy with the deepest pockets. It may be some young guy who really does care for the land, who wants opportunities. So it's this year that is the sesquicentennial, correct? Yes. Yeah? Okay, so could you talk about the importance of that um, well, designation? Yeah. Okay, so actually, uh, George R. Terry bought this farm January 2nd of 1871, which was a year ago. So we could have become a, could have become a sesquicentennial farm last year. However, with the pandemic, etc., we decided to hold off and apply this year because uh, this summer we had a family gathering for the observance of becoming a sesquicentennial farm. And we had, so I have two older sisters, David is younger than I am, and I have three first cousins, and uh, they were all here with their descendants uh, to help us celebrate. So what does a centennial and sesquicentennial farm mean? I think it means perseverance to tackle the challenges in the tough times. Uh, you know, I guess you could say that in those tough times, maybe it's a survival mode, but then in the good times you thrive, you know, and, and we've been able to do that, you know. Uh, my grandparents hung on to the farm during the Depression, for example. We've been through some pretty serious droughts, you know, that uh, really was tough financially, but we persevered uh, because we had faith in the future. You know, I mean, uh, if you know anything about uh, FFA Creed, it starts out, I believe, in the future of agriculture with a faith born not of words, but of deeds. You know, achievements won by present and past generations of agriculturists and the promise of better days through better ways, even as the better things we now enjoy have come to us from the struggle of former years. And uh, I think that's, to some extent, that kind of sums it up. This podcast was brought to you by Massey Ferguson, building the equipment for those born to farm for 175 years. Thank you to Ed Terry for being our guest today. You can read more about Ed Terry's 150-year-old Minnesota farm on agriculture.com. For Successful Farming, I'm David Ekstrom.